What is secular humanism? Critical thinking. Knowledge is freedom. Freedom from ignorance and its offspring, fear. Humanist lore. Welcome to Humanist Lore, the podcast which explores reason and ethics. I'm your host, C-Dax. And I'm your co-host, Drake. Welcome to the show, everyone. This is episode two of Humanist Lore. At the end of today's show, we will be featuring an interview by Dr. Peter Bogosian, instructor of philosophy at Portland State University, international speaker and author of Street Epistemology, and a manual for creating atheists. One of his key focuses is how to engage people in discussions about how they know what they know. The topic of philosophical engagement often comes up at the BC Humanist Association. We like to ask people how they know things or what evidence is behind their claims. Religious people often base their entire worldview on faith. Their ideas about reality are solely based upon a feeling in their heart or what they've been told by religious authorities. The faithful use ancient dogma as their primary source of knowledge about the origins of humanity and the universe. However, Many of us in the atheist community believe that the scientific method is the only reliable way to truly know. It's a system which is based on rigorous testing, the results of which are accumulated and verified over time. So how should we, as humanists, discuss our worldview, that is to say, How does one open a dialogue to discuss belief versus non-belief in a rational, respectful way which truly reaches people and does not simply create discord? As many of you well know, it can be very difficult to even bring up the topic of atheism with people who hold strong religious convictions. Before you attempt a discussion, you may want to assess the open-mindedness of the person you are talking to. Many religious people feel so strongly about their supernatural beliefs that they may get extremely defensive and emotional at the slightest hint of an alternative point of view, making a rational discussion nearly impossible. But despite the obstacles, it's very important to discuss people's worldview. Why? Well, ask yourself, what kind of world do you want to live in? Do you want to live in a world based on reason and evidence, or a world based on myth and superstition? Our society's public policies are affected by people's core beliefs, people who vote and lobby governments. So, if the majority of people base their core beliefs on religious misinformation, then our laws will be full of injustice. Take the case of marriage equality. Religious groups lobby governments to deny gay people the right to marry based on their core belief that being gay is a sin. However, it seems to many enlightened people 
that allowing these hateful notions to influence public policy hurts people. It denies equal rights to citizens in our modern era by perpetuating primitive Bronze Age prejudices. The Bible and the Quran, for example, have atrocious moral codes when compared to modern ethical standards. For example, the treatment of women and slaves as being bought and sold like cattle. So how can it be rational to allow a modern dynamic society to continue to be influenced by ancient documents which condone hate and persecution? Or take, for example, public schools teaching creationism to children instead of evolution. The false assertions of creationism cheat innocent young minds out of a proper scientific education by actively ignoring key facts such as the carbon dating of ancient fossils. Such misinformation creates an entire generation of poorly educated children who are misinformed about how the scientific method works. The consequence of this false education is that local economies will falter and people will suffer hardships, being unable to compete in our technology-based global economy. So how does one start a constructive dialogue about the topic of evidence versus faith as a way to pursue knowledge? The purpose of a philosophical engagement is not to tell someone they are wrong or to instantly change their mind, but hopefully to start them down a path of critical thinking, ignite their natural curiosity, and start them on an inner journey of discovery. If you would like to help spread the word about the importance of critical thinking, please add the Humanist Lore podcast to your social media pages. Simply post feeds.feedburner.com forward slash humanist lore. And now, we're very pleased to present the following interview with Dr. Peter Bogosian. I saw him live at the last Imagine No Religion conference, and his lecture was fantastic, very inspirational. This interview was conducted by the BC Humanist Association's very own roving reporter, Darwin Toivo. Take it away, Darwin. Hello and welcome to another edition of British Columbia Humanist Podcast. I'm your host, Darwin Toivo, and today's rising star guest is Dr. Peter Bogosian of the Department of Philosophy at Portland State University, who has recently published a fascinating book entitled A Manual for Creating Atheists. It's a very good pleasure to welcome you to Abbotsford, Thanks. B.C., the Appreciate buckle in the Bible belt of B.C. I've been told that. Uh, let's see if we can change that. You know, of course, the famous expression comes from uh, Henry H.L. Mencken, uh, the great journalist from the Baltimore Sun. Did not know that. Oh, well, yeah, and he covered the Scopes Monkey trial, and uh, his famous definition of Puritanism was that they have a haunting fear that someone somewhere is having a good time. Oh, right. So let's see if we can create right. a little fear right. for the Puritans out there. Right. Okay. Uh, well, that's, that's one of the goals tonight. Very good. Um, my first question is, uh, Nathaniel Hawthorne used to say of Herman Melville that as an unbeliever, he was extremely uneasy in his disbelief. 
And I was just wondering about yourself. Uh, do you ever have doubts or unease about your disbelief of the supernatural and religious? Doubt, uh, meaning I think that I might be wrong and that there might be some supernatural phenomena out there? Yeah, of the supernatural or the religious. Do you have an unease or doubts about that? No. Uh, w what I have is a way to figure out if that's true or not. So I have a mechanism to figure out if there are supernatural realms, supernatural phenomena. And the method is very simple. It's a naturalistic method, the tools of science. So we can, if there are supernatural realms, well, there are two possibilities. Let's just say it's binary, right? There okay. are supernatural realms or there are not supernatural realms. Now, if there are supernatural realms, then they either can, that's also binary, they can either affect us or they can affect us. Right. If they can't, if they have no effect in this world, then it doesn't make any difference if they're supernatural realms. Mm. Okay. Now, but if they can affect this world, then they'd leave some kind of a phenomenological footprint. Mm -hmm. so a trace be, of some sort. Yeah, so we'd be able to look and then turn the tools of science on that. Very good. But given that we've had no evidence whatsoever of a footprint, then there's no, not even a, a question to doubt because you, you need evidence to get to the point mm. Where that's, yeah. Right, as Dr. Neil deGrasse Tyson says, there's there's no there there. Yeah, that's exactly. right. Exactly. So, okay. Now, I'm just going to hold up the book for our, our viewers, and this is your latest uh, tome, a, a manual for creating atheists, and available in fine bookstores everywhere, and at very reasonably priced, I might add. We went right to uh, paperback, and if they can't find it in the bookstore, it's on Amazon. Oh, very good. Okay. Now, um, I also noticed the foreword is by Michael Shermer, the yeah. publisher of Skeptic Magazine. That's correct. Great. So what, one more thing to look forward to. And uh, I wanted to ask about something in the book. It's called the trans-theoretical model. Right. How do you figure out where someone is on the spectrum of their, of their change in the model? Well, there are many ways to do that. It, well, it, it, I assume you're talking about the context of a, a faith-based intervention. Yes. Yeah, okay. So there are many ways to do that. Given that I do so many of these on a regular basis, I just have to be very time efficient and cut to the point and just ask them a percentage. So I basically ask people straight out. I figure out what their superstition is or what their faith-based beliefs are, and then I find as specific a claim as possible, and then I ask them to assign a confidence value to that. Okay. With zero being this, it's absolutely impossible. So I was going to say maybe one to one hundred. Hmm. 50 being, yeah, maybe, maybe. 75 being, yeah, I think so. I'm pretty sure of it. And 100% being, I cannot be there. Absolutely positive, totally certain. So they self-identify yeah. where, where they are. That's yeah. I see. Okay. You just you have to have to have some trust that people are going to... Right. Yeah. Okay. Um, another thing mentioned in the book is the wonderful phrase that most people probably have never heard of called doxastic closure. Right. The closed mind or belief closure. And I was wondering how, you know, because we... We've all encountered this in our life. It could be in other fields, but with respect to the people who believe in the supernatural and religious, how do you approach that mindset without setting off all kinds of defensive barriers, walls going up, um, offense being taken? Yeah. It's, it, it, it's a whole gamut it comes into play. Yeah, it's a great question. I talk about that in Chapter 4 of the book. How you do it is you take a look at the peer-reviewed literature for how to change the behavior of people who don't want their behavior changed. And then we borrow from the interventions in the prisons, interventions of drug and alcohol addicts, etc. We, we can use some of those tools, but we create non-adversarial relationships with people. We're very sincere in our conversations and our questions. Um, and then we use those or we, we facilitate those conversations not as a way to threaten people so their defensive posture right. goes up, 
but as a way to be honest and sincere and always in the forefront of our mind saying, well, maybe they know something I don't know. Chance to learn something. Yeah. Yeah, Hitchens used to say that he, even though he, he very often didn't encounter this, he would very much look forward to the chance to learn something new right. from, from a, uh, his debate opponent. Right. And so as a follow-on question to that, um, what carefully chosen words are best to elicit that, that sort of non- uh, defensive posture. Do you have a set of words that you use? I do. That, I and, do. And, and it's something that, uh, because we want to create a feeling of reciprocity, right? right? So what, what are those key words? Well, you really want to make sure that people aren't threatened in these one-on-one interactions, and so there's an entire line of literature in the psychological literature about uh, we, I try to avoid I, I try to avoid, it's also tone, so it's not just words, mm. but it's definitely words as well. I see. So uh, how could one figure that out rather than placing the burden on some. This should never be a, a tone of ridicule, mm-hmm. but it should be a tone of, um, of, of reciprocity. But, but the, the words, that there are, um, if you excuse the vulgarity, there are a litany of words that one could use in that context, but it has to be tailored to the person with whom you're speaking. Ah. So that's part of it, part of the motivational interviewing is you have to meet people where they are, and different people come from different traditions and they have different types of doxastic, so they're closed in different sorts of ways. Okay. And, so and the book elaborates on all this. It does, and it gives actual interventions, conversations that I've had that guide people through how to use the templates. Yes, now that, that leads into my next question then, which is you have a, a TV reality show coming out, I believe very soon, called The Reason Whis- Whisperer. That's the tentative title. That's the idea. So, uh, <clears throat> and, and, and I was wondering if you could take, yeah. maybe give us one or two examples of, a, of your approach, say, in a church or a temple or a mosque. And how do you not get thrown out on your tukus? Tukus. It's a cool word. Uh, so, uh, so what we do is we'll, um, the, the, the team will find a, a um, temple or a mosque or a synagogue or a megachurch. We like megachurches a lot. Okay. And we'll go in and I'll always participate. Um, I don't pretend that I'm, a, I don't wear any garb or costumes or I don't, I don't mm-hmm. pretend that I'm something I'm not. If anybody asks me, I am completely honest with them about what I'm doing there and why, that, why I'm there. And you find people are unbelievably receptive and kind and nice and everybody wants you to, to uh, also participate in their superstition, so that's never a problem. <laughs> right. Right. And then when they come out, we have someone who has a waiver. And these are real people. It's not scripted. There are no actors. There's. I have no idea who these people are. I've never seen them before. I mean, I might have seen them in the church, but I've never seen them, or the mosque, I've never seen them before that. They sign a waiver, and then we get them on film, and then we begin the intervention. Okay. Yeah. Oh, wow. And is it, it takes place on the, the premises of the, of the church or temple or mosque? It depends. So if so the last one we did was in a temple, and so the, the ones that are in a temple, we go in and we have everybody sign waivers. So once the waivers are signed, we can then use that footage. I see. Okay. I was wondering about, I'm going to ask a question about foils. Uh, many religiously-minded people are absolutely determined to be offended, no matter how gentle you are in your yeah. approach. And I, sometimes you have uh, moderates who are also listening in at the same time. Yeah. And it could act as a foil in that uh, the moderates see how fanatical fanatics are. Yeah. And does that help win over the moderates, I'm wondering? Boy, that question is radically contextual. It, it depends who the people are. You know, the other thing is I'm 47 now, so I have to be, um, I have to be very uh, attentive to gender. I have to be very attentive to 
attentive to race, I have to be very attentive to age differences. So those things can come off as uh, hegemony or picking on people mm. or it, it just depends who's listening, it depends what the initial beliefs are. Uh, there, there's no, I, I, it's in, that's a, an impossible question because okay. there are just too many variables that go into that whole. Right. Well, I'll try to ask a possible question then. Uh, what you're saying, the approach that you're giving, the tools that you're, you're, you're laying out for people, this requires a certain amount of courage. People have to be able to speak with a little bit of courage. And I was just wondering, for example, in, in your particular case, and maybe in general, where does courage come from? Are, are we born with it? Do we learn it? Is, it? is it a combination of the two? Because people are being asked to confront long-held beliefs that their grandparents or parents or the people that they've trusted all their lives have given them. And to challenge that. Oh, you mean courage on the part of the person who's self-examining, not the part. No, the person who's actually posing the questions, who's, who's doing the <coughs> doing the. Well, you, I mean, why uh, does it? Why? Well, be, uh, imagine yourself um, being uh, growing up in a family that had been uh, believers in one faith or another, and you come <coughs> to be skeptical of that faith, and you have to choose uh, whether or not to confront or challenge. Uh, these faiths, these beliefs, and, and a family structure, maybe with colleagues, maybe you hear some, you hear something that's absolutely outrageous in, in, a, in a work setting that you want to challenge. This requires courage from someone to do that sort of challenge. And I'm wondering, okay. where, does, where does this courage come from? Well, I'll answer your, your question uh, directly in a moment, but I think it, it's less that it requires courage and it, it's more that it requires being honest with oneself. And so if people have sort of honesty with oneself in a sense that's really all you need so maybe we could think that that courage is bundled in that Aristotle talks about the difference between bravery and courage mm -hmm. and I thought about that for a long time the answer that I've come up with may be unsatisfactory but I think that they're just words I think that we we they're just linguistic placeholders and we can we ascribe different meanings to the meanings of words the older I get I'm I'm realizing more and more that the words have meanings depending on how people use them. And different people mm -hmm. use words in different contexts. But I think thinking about it in terms of courage, while it may be useful, I think it's more productive to think about it in terms of being honest with oneself. I see. Okay. Well, we're getting near the end of the interview, and I've only got a couple of questions left for you. Uh, I did want to mentioned that uh, you, you've been to Athens and the Parthenon as, as have I and I wanted to talk a little bit about the Parthenon myth for just a second. Uh, I was just there last summer and at, at the new Acropolis Museum which is world class, I highly mm. recommend it. The typical story that we have comes from two English travelers mm. from 1787 and it says that the ultimate scene on the, the frieze of the Parthenon is giving of a protective sacred cloth for the statue of Athena and her birthday every year and also a, lar a larger garment-sized robe every four years for the Panathenaea festival. Now this is the typical scholastic uh, approach that we've understood for over two centuries. But in 1995, an NYU professor, Dr. Joan Con uh, Connolly, an archeologist, she came up with a wholly plausible, plausible narrative of the frieze that is incredibly different and radical. It uh, depicts uh, the mother and father on the frieze, uh, Queen Praxithea and King Erechtheus as sacrificing their three daughters uh, to save Athens uh, from defeat by Poseidon's son Eumolpus. And the mythical thinking being that sons fought and oh, died. This is an esoteric question. <laughs> okay, I'm trying to follow on. Okay. 
So the mythical thinking being that sons fought and died in war as a sacrifice to okay. Athens. Daughters should also sacrifice, and the way that they could do this was by sacrificing their lives, just being sacrificed by the parents would actually kill their children as a sacrifice. So when this was first proposed by Dr. Joan Connolly, the, the scholars were astounded to the point of silence. They didn't know how to handle it. They, were, they had been given this firmament of belief of the other storyline all their scholastic life. And now they, they have this new model, and they, since 1995 they haven't been able to adopt it. If you go to the Acropolis Museum today, you still get the old two-century version right. of the story. They can't handle this new information. It doesn't, doesn't compute with what they've been taught. So we're dealing with very reasonable, mature uh, individuals all their life have been studying and being willing, hopefully been open to evidence, and they can't handle this new evidence. So I'm wondering, how do you get past this blockage in people who aren't so scholarly, who aren't so dedicated and mature? Oh, what a question. Um, okay, so, so there must be some tools within that discipline by which they can make the evaluation of what constitutes reliable evidence, and then they can assign a confidence value to that, and based upon that confidence value, maybe it's the consensus of scholars, that can then be incorporated in the corpus of literature or not. So there are mechanisms that are in place within specific disciplines by which we can make these judgments. Now, since your question was rather esoteric, I will answer with somewhat of an esoteric <laughs> response. Reciprocity. Yeah, so there's also in, in um, there's a, a, a really interesting little book called by, the, by a man by the name of Kuhn, Thomas Kuhn, and he wrote The Structure of Scientific Revolutions. And he talks about how we look back at different epochs and each person, each scientific epochs, people and cultures thought that the views they held were true and eternal and timeless. Mm -hmm. And then how, how is it that we went from a, uh, you know, these, these, these turns from a geocentric universe to a heliocentric universe to a, or Newtonian physics, posters. So um, that's very, that illustrates the idea of how people and how scientific communities then come to consensus and change their minds. And then thinkers like Feyerabend and such have taken that into, into a whole new level. Um, what I do in philosophy, we already have those canons of belief. I mean, not belief, but we have those tools in the field of epistemology given to us by Plato and Theotetus. And then there's been a long list of scholars who have added to that. And mm -hmm. if uh, your viewers want, it's they can just access that free online from the Stanford Encyclopedia of Philosophy. Yes, yeah, an excellent source. Right. Yeah. So they can go and they can think if you plug punch in epistemology, it will talk about Plato, Theotetus, knowledge is justified true belief, and it will take you up to this, these things called Gettier problems, and then so. But the idea behind that, to answer your question, is. Um, if the if the idea is that there are really smart people and they some they somehow can't accept new pieces of evidence to, to either change the way they think about something or change the way they believe something, that's certainly true. One problem with that is what Michael Shermer talks about in in the Believing Brain and elsewhere is being intelligent is not a prophylactic against believing stupid things. <laughs> so if, if somebody is particularly intelligent, one consequence of that is they're better at rationalizing bad ideas. So to answer your question about 
how this deals with rank and file believers, you're basically asking people a series of questions to see if they agree with themselves. You're listening contradictions. You're asking them to be honest and sincere with themselves. You're asking them to stop pretending to know things they don't know. Yes. Now we know, we know that that is an empirical claim. The claim that, that many religious people and many religious leaders pretend to know things they don't know. People seem to think that that definition is plucked out of nowhere. That's not true at all. Dan Dennett, in Preachers Who Are Not Believers, uh, and then Breaking the Spell talks, talks about that. Stephen Pinker talks about yes. that. Dennett talks about that in uh, Leaving the Pulpit, in his new book. Right. We know empirically we can test that phenomenon. We can test that claim. We know for a fact that there are, and then the Clergy Project is also yes. evidence of that. So we know that there are a tremendous number of people who are pretending to know something they don't know. Now, to go back to your earlier example, mm -hmm. I don't think that's the case with many scholars. They become, they come from encrusted places where they're taught by their teachers what's true, etc. Yes. Okay, so now we're going to add one more, one more spin on this for your esoteric question. Okay. Okay. The other spin is, I don't think, and I could be wrong because I'm not familiar with that area of, of scholarship, the, the, the new scholarship around that. I don't think that there's, there are notions of virtue attached to particular scholarly positions. Mm. I think that there are particular scholarly positions that people have to, happen to have taken based upon their exegesis or their readings of texts yes. or their history of scholarship or their teachers or whatever lineage they happen to have come from. I think that the, one of the problems with faith is that it is bundled with a moral edifice. Mm. So that, that it, this is why it is so difficult to dislodge faith-based propositions, faith-based faith, faith -based beliefs. Mm. One of the reasons is because people who hold these beliefs, they think it makes them better people as a result of holding these beliefs. Right. So that's what Dennett calls belief in beliefs. It's a complicated problem and we face additional difficulties in helping to free people these delusions because they think that holding these delusions makes them a better person. Yeah, they get very invested. It, it's, it's very hard to divest yourself of these things once you've gotten in. And the last thing I wanted to mention is that you've mentioned in the past that you have a 95-year-old a mentor. Yes. A Buchenwald survivor. Yes. And uh, that must be a fascinating connection. I think his name is Frank Wesley. Frank a Wesley. Professor. He's a former professor, professor emeritus at uh, Portland State. Fabulous. And Frank is alive and well and a fascinating, fascinating human being. Wow. Oh, I look forward to learning more about him. Yeah. And I just wanted to end off the, the podcast by presenting you with a Canadian lapel pin. Thank you very much. <laughs> I appreciate it. I will wear this today. We'll make you an honorary tonight. Canadian today. Well, thank you very much. <laughs> You're very welcome. And that concludes our, our interview for today. And much obliged to everybody for listening. Take care. Thanks. Thanks for joining us for another episode of Humanist Lore. I believe the time has come for humanists to unite to create a warm, embracing community which provides comfort and inspiration. Humanity deserves to be free, free from religious oppression and superstition. It will take a mighty swell of voices to create real and lasting change, billions of minds awakening together. Please join us on this journey. Become an active part of the humanist movement. 
And if you live in BC's Lower Mainland, go to bchumanist.ca and join us for an upcoming event. Thank you for listening to Humanist Lore.